0: education is what's important training preparation for the expected education preparation for the unexpected
1: good afternoon team krulak community and on behalf of marine corps university the marine corps university foundation and the brute krulak center for innovation and creativity welcome back to the broadcast. our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and pme with the best and in innovative and creative thought i'm your host major ian brown operations officer at the krulak center Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, so today we have a return guest to the broadcast, and if you joined us last summer for our Wargaming panel, you've seen some of his work. Dr. Andrew Reddy is an assistant professor of practice at the University of California, Berkeley School of Information, and senior engineer at Sandia National Laboratories where he works on projects related to cybersecurity, nuclear weapons policy, wargaming, and emerging military technologies. Andrew is currently a Bridging the Gap New Era Fellow, Hans J. Morgenthau Fellow at Notre Dame University, a non-resident fellow here at the Kulak Center, and Research Director at the center, <coughs> excuse me, center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. His work has appeared in Science, the Journal of Cyber Policy, and the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Among other outlets, and has been variously supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, MacArthur Foundation, and the US Department of Energy's Nuclear Science and Security Consortium. So, on our wargaming panel, you got a taste of his work. Today, we're going to do a deep dive in his discussion on From Art to Science, Analytical Wargaming, and Behavioral Research. Dr. Reddy, thanks for joining us, and I'll turn things over to you.
2: Perfect. Thanks so much, Ian. Uh, very, very kind introduction, um, and looking forward to, to chatting with the group here. Uh, shortly uh, so with that, I'll, I'll get started and, uh, share my screen. Of course, as Ian mentioned, the usual caveat apply. uh, I'm speaking here in a personal capacity. Um, the views presented here don't, don't reflect those of, uh, us government, uh, the national labs or, or, or indeed, Sandia national labs. Um, so hopefully you can see here full screen. Um, so I'm going to talk to you today, uh, about. Um, well, my presentation today is built on a paper that's been recently submitted, kind of really getting focused on war game design and how we might be thinking about the laboratory effects that are kind of embedded inside of the war game designs that we use, uh, and and kind of leaving us all with with a, a question at the end as to how best to start to tease out the laboratory effects associated with various types of war games. Um, in terms of, you know, motivating this, uh, a lot of the work that we did uh, in the nuclear wargaming realm with, with our platform Signal, which was one of the first uh, large large-scale experimental wargaming platforms kind of created towards data collection, we actually implemented it in kind of three different modes. We implemented it as a tabletop exercise, um, kind of seminar-based game. We implemented it as a board game uh, with obviously rules-based adjudication, you know, no no white cell, if you will. Uh, And then, of course, in an online game, and I think 1 of the things that came out of that, that process was was recognizing the differences in player behavior across those different environments. Not necessarily in the ways that you would expect. Um, So, for example, 1 of the things that we were often told when we were starting the project was that you know players who played the online game were were sure to be aggressive because I'm putting them behind a computer screen. And when humans are faced with a computer screen, they become very aggressive. Well, we didn't find that inside of our inside of our data. So that's that's an interesting finding. Uh, but it does it is the case that, that the behaviors between you know the board and the tabletop exercise and the online game look very different. And in an environment where all of us are trying to figure out, you know, what Wargaming looks like during COVID um, and turning towards the use of online tools for doing things like uh, we do in our work with large, large N uh, data analysis, you know, thinking it really seriously about, um, you know, the, how to, how to appropriately kind of think, think and tease apart these effects is, is really important. Um, So what I want to do, um, what I want to do today is to kind of talk a little bit about what I see as our challenge as a Wargaming community. When we're talking about Wargame design, talk a little bit about where Wargaming methods fit inside of the broader analytical toolkit, um, and then present the Wargame designers trilemma, uh, which is kind of reflecting how we think about Wargame design inside of our shop, um, and then talk through a couple of examples from uh, from existing work, uh, and then finally talk about where we think analytical wargaming you know, could could go uh, here moving forward. I think that one of the things that hopefully was made clear in the wargaming panel last year is that this is a really exciting part of the field for lots of important reasons, uh, not least that the ways in which we would kind of usually engage with questions around international security often don't apply to the questions that we seem to be getting asked by policymakers. Questions like, how do emerging capabilities impact strategic stability? We don't have empirical data with which to actually adjudicate that question. Um, and so you know wargaming offers something of a compelling uh, tool inside of our toolkit to actually engage with those sorts of questions and actually give um, you know some answers that are grounded in terms of analytical insight rather than just you know theorizing around the problem set. Uh, so that's what we'll we'll do here. Um, hopefully for about thirty minutes or so, and then and then we'll go to uh, to Q and A. And really interested to, to have that chat uh, with with all of you. Um, so as I mentioned, you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the questions that 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 we're getting a- asked uh, in in this kind of early 2020s time period um, suffer from from this problem, which is a dearth of empirical data. In an ideal case as a social scientist, if I'm presented with a problem, I will go out into the world and I'll try to find examples of that problem and then look for uh, look for insights based on that empirical data. But if somebody asks me, hey, what's the impact of hypersonic glide um, on the likelihood of escalation, or does missile defense capability lead to more proliferation of certain capabilities? I'm not in a place where I can adjudicate those claims on the basis of empirical data. Um, so anytime that we're faced with new capabilities or new strategies what we find is a, a big theoretical discussion in our you know in, in, our, in our venues du jour whether it's war in the rocks or the bulletin or um, or lawfare kind of talking about the relative costs and benefits of deploying a certain capability or not and and that literature is great I mean lots of really smart people are involved in it uh, but it, it can be Fairly unsatisfying, based on the fact that there's no real data to kind of get to grips with and to sort to adjudicate, you know, who's right and, and who's wrong. And I think one of the pitches that you know I often make is that war gaming methods can really fill this gap and provide a you know a really powerful tool with which to think about strategic interaction and having consequences that matter um, and, and getting a, a sense of. You know how humans behave in these environments where the capabilities are present and looking at how that might you know vary in those situations where they don't. Um, and so you know I think that this is this is you know what I, why I get up in the morning. this is why I'm excited about uh, this this particular tool. Um, and so as I mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the challenge posed with designing war games for analytical purposes, um, examine some of the value associated with analytical wargaming approaches. Um, You know, I'll I'll do a little bit of compare and contrast with formal methods, survey experiments, et cetera, and talk about what I think are some of the important differences between them Uh, and then interrogate some examples of wargaming or wargaming used for analytical purposes. Um, And and the goal here is to really start a conversation in the community about how various game designs influence what we can learn from wargames and to make sure that we're not overstating What we can learn from war games, but also not understating and kind of being clear as we walk into a particular problem set. This is what a war game design can actually achieve here. Um, and as I said, you know, this this presentation is very much based on an article uh, that that we've written for our colleagues at the neighbor War college for leading an edited volume on cyber war gaming. Um, So, as I mentioned, our past work was really focused on the nuclear set and so I'll, I'll. Uh, foreshadow some of the research that you're going to see coming out of our shop on cyber deterrence, uh, just in case it's of of interest uh, to folks. Um, So. The toolkit, Um, as I mentioned, you know, as a social scientist, you know, not modally, I will go out into the world and I'll look for empirical or observational data and, you know, that work will take the form of case study research. Um, using, you know, methods of agreement, methods of difference, or, you know, large end uh, data collection efforts. So things like the international crisis behavior dataset, or the correlates of war or MIDS, right? Those are going to be used to kind of uh, engage with, you know, particular sets of questions. Um, and, and, the, and those are great as far as they go, but only when that data is available. And as I've said, you know, a lot of the questions that, that I think are most interesting currently in the field don't have this empirical data present. Um, and so, you know, that leaves us looking at various synthetic data sharing processes or what I call DGPs, um, that are, that are well-worn. So, you know, for a lot of problems where we don't have empirical data, we rely on game theory and formal models and we say, okay, well, this problem, it looks a little bit like chicken, or it looks a little bit like the prisoner's dilemma. And so that's, you know, that's kind of how I'm going to think through this problem set. Um and, and that and that's you know been useful um as far as it goes. Computer-based simulation and modeling, the same. Um obviously with those tools you're able to expand the number of variables inside of the analysis uh, and also get to run the models over and over again, uh, which is which is useful. But one of the things that is problematic for both formal models and computer-based simulation and modeling is that it really relies um upon assumptions about how the world works in order to drive model outcomes, rather than human behavior. There's no human inside of my computer-based model that says, hey, I'm going to do this. Instead, I'm saying, hey, a human has these characteristics. Let's say they're more or less rational, and they more or less have good information about what's going on. Therefore, this is how um, they're likely to behave as the model spits out an answer. So to to remedy that particular problem, the fact that we kind of take the human out of the process, uh, we we often turn towards things like survey experiments. Um, And so these are great, like they have, you know, humans inside of them. Uh, They have other problems, uh, not least that I give, you know, I give you a a survey for 5 to 10 minutes. Um, You know, there's no real consequences for you bubbling in A, B, or C. Um, And of course, you don't have a lot of time to think about how those consequences might be internalized. Uh, in any case, there's various ways where you know we try to get around this problem instead of survey experiments, but it's it's pretty intrinsic to the to the method. And so one of the things that that I quite like about war games used for analytical purposes, and particularly uh, when they're used in experimental forms, is that we can address these issues because war games provide an environment where humans are central to gameplay, uh, and we also have players having to engage with the consequences of their actions from round to round. Uh, And so they deal with some of the problems that are associated with other synthetic DGPs. Of course, you know, this is not me standing on my bully pulpit and saying, you know, we should do only word gaming all the time. All of these data generating processes have their time and place and I'm a big fan of mixed methods work. So oftentimes in, in the work that you'll see from me, you'll see a combination of wargaming data with survey data, with formal modeling data, and where it's available available uh, empirical data as well. And so, you know, you definitely want to try to kind of triangulate findings across DGPs if it's possible, but I think it is worth pointing out where these differences, uh, differences lie. And of course, you know, signal, uh, the nuclear war game that, that we built um, between Berkeley, Livermore, and Sandia serves as a really good example of this, right? It was a game that was built towards trying to get large numbers of players to play a large number of games and then using those games to actually establish uh, how differences in capabilities influence gameplay. Uh, and obviously, we were most interested in, in patterns of nuclear use uh, in, inside of that context, uh, but very exciting about how excited about how that turned out. Um, to the best of our knowledge, it's still the largest, uh, you know, Wargaming data set of its, of its kind uh, that, that exists. Um, and of course, you know, the, the Wargaming also gets to build on a lot of, you know, uh, history that, that, you know, going all the way back from German examples into Naval War College examples into the various applications during the Cold War, um, you know, on both the training and education side, um, where we see war games used in both military and academic context. Uh, indeed, I just ran here from a class um, where you know definitely use war games inside the classroom and they work really well. Um, trust me, it's easier to teach deterrence from a war game than, than having them having undergraduates read shelling, um, although shelling's great. Uh, and then obviously the analytical applications. And I think that one of the things that is true, of existing analytical work is that they look slightly different from the way that, you know, our, our team's kind of gone about uh, using war games for, for analysis. So often, you know, shops like CNA and RAND, um, Naval War College, latterly CNAS, um, they often design games specifically around an identified policy challenge. So you'll see a Baltic Sea game, a South China Sea game, a Taiwan Straits crisis game, etc. Um, Obviously, not always tied to geography, but geography is obviously one of the variables that often we look at. Um, They also often have large game staffs and in-depth preparation for the games. Um, You know, I've seen briefing books that are novel length that are given to players before they step inside of the room. And often we're trying to engage high-level policymakers inside of these environments, Um, whether they're current officials, that's sometimes very difficult to achieve, former officials, a little bit easier, Uh, think tankers, Uh, senior academics, et cetera. Um, And so, you know, this this is kind of the way that traditionally we've thought about using kind of, or designing war games with analytical applications. But those traditional war game designs have problems, uh, not least replication. So, oftentimes a game design, particularly if it's white cell oriented, um, will have a game that moves in a particular direction, and it's very difficult to unpack how it ends up moving in that direction and what role the white cell plays uh, in 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 driving that process forward. There's also sample bias concerns, uh, particularly when you don't get current officials but get former's, um, and obviously if you don't get the right mix of of, of players. Um, for example, if you're really interested in a in a China scenario or a Russia scenario, having an American Chinese expert is not the same thing as having a Chinese policymaker. Um, and so that's a, that's a pretty significant problem uh, associated with the ways that we kind of traditionally do these, do do these war games. And then, of course, laterally sponsorship bias, we need to make sure that war games aren't used to kind of uh, rehash debates that have already been settled. Um, and so, you know, I think most of the shops that I mentioned are really good about this, Uh, but there is, of course, a danger that. You know, a question's been asked and answered, and a war game is used to kind of buttress an argument. And of course, when you're thinking about pure research, that's not what not what we're after. Um, we also have data concerns with these war games. Indeed, the data that you derive from a lot of traditional war games is really rapporteur based, um, and so what the rapporteurs are able to capture is is, is ends up being the conclusion. Um, and obviously, you know, we can talk about you know who those rapporteurs tend to be, et cetera. Um, as a result, data collection can be a little bit incidental. Um, there can be a little bit of confusion about whether the war game is interested in what I call process oriented conclusions versus outcome oriented conclusions. Uh, it's perfectly reasonable from my perspective for a traditional war game design to say, hey, I've got a lot of you know current or former officials around the table and they seem to think that issue X is germane to this crisis. Um, that's a perfectly reasonable finding from, from from a war game that's played once. What I think is a little bit more tenuous is if uh, an analyst says, well, in the Baltic Sea scenario that we played, you know, this happened. Um, and, you know, on the basis of that one game, you say, hey, you know, this is gonna happen every single time inside this scenario. That's, that's not, not super appropriate uh, from my perspective. Uh, The other major problem with game design that we have currently is that game designs are treated as intellectual property, which means that actually interrogating them for things like laboratory effects that I want to talk about here shortly is is very difficult to do. Um, Ideally, we want researchers to pick up game designs and try them in lots of different ways. I want somebody to pick up the signal game design and I want them to change something about it. So we built a Three-player game. What what happens if you have exactly the same rule set and you play it with five players? Does it meaningfully change the conclusions that we're able to draw about gameplay? That's the way we want this 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 kind of uh, community to work. And when we treat war game designs as intellectual property, that becomes very difficult to do. Uh, So one of the things that that we've committed to do in our work is to publish the game designs and actually publish articles that discuss the game design decisions that we make, because, of course, there are no quote unquote right decisions in war game design. There are just defensible decisions in war game design. Uh, So we'll publish articles about the results of a particular uh, war game environment vis-a-vis a a research question, but also publish an article that talks about the design trade offs that we've made uh, as well. And I think that's really important uh to do, particularly as we're only at the very beginning of understanding these laboratory effects. Um, and so I think that's a really important thing to emphasize. Um, and so experimental wargaming methods or analytical wargaming methods should seek to address these challenges. Try to create conditions under which causal inference is possible, generalizability of findings is possible, replicability is possible, uh, and provide a way to do theory development and theory testing where observational data, you know, is is otherwise limited. Um, And and obviously, one of the nice things that you get in war games that you don't get in formal models and you don't get in survey experiments is that you can layer on the complexity in in ways that perhaps you can't inside of those DGPs. That's not to say that we can make war game designs endlessly complex. You absolutely can't for reasons that I'll discuss here shortly. Uh, But you are able to kind of Talk about cyber and conventional and gray zone and nuclear in the same breath without without kind of having to separate all of them out like I would in a survey experiment. Um, and so you know that's 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 pretty useful uh, as well. And of course you know I have lots of colleagues writing around this area. It's not just me. Uh, Jackie Schneider's doing lots of great work here. Eric Lynn Greenberg's doing great work here. Uh, Reed Polly. Um, more recently, John Emery uh, diving into archival war game data uh, from RAND and from MIT, uh, you know, are doing excellent work in this in this space. Um, and so, you know, I want to talk a little bit about war game design, just to kind of open up the 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 box, if you will, the black box of game design, to to kind of give you a sense of what we think about uh, when when we're doing uh, designing. And and indeed, you know, our team has come up with this what we what we think is a, th- a kind of a trilemma. Uh, between the different things that you you know you weigh as a as a war game designer, uh, and so you know I'm going to talk talk about them here. Uh, for for to start with, uh, I'll I'll say that you know there there is no again right or textbook uh, level of fidelity or complexity or abstraction that you can bake into any particular game. It's this the where you land inside of this triangle is always going to be driven by your research question. And I think that's appropriate. And so really what we weigh with on our team are three things. The first is analytical utility. Am I able to answer my research question and extract the data that I need from the war game to answer my research question, right? So analytical utility is up there. Engaging play, right? Is a player able to actually pick up my game and learn it in a reasonable amount of time that allows them to play it and for me to collect data on them. And hopefully it's not sterile. Right. Don't, don't create a sterile environment for your, for your player. And then finally, contextual realism. Does it take the things that are happening in the real world that we want to model and creating them inside the game environment appropriately? And obviously, different games look different based where where we live inside of this triangle. For example, Signal, designed certainly with analytical utility in mind abstracts out a lot of contextual realism in terms of capabilities. We're not modeling um, a lo- lots of nuclear effects. We're only modeling some of them. Uh, engaging play. We ha- we have some variation in players who think the signal was really easy versus really hard. Uh, but again, you want to try to create like the Goldilocks amount of engagement from your game design. Uh, and so where we end up living inside of this triangle uh, is really important. So so that's in, that's important to, to, to note up front. Indeed, you can actually put the DGPS that I just mentioned previously on this same triangle, if if you'd like, um, or simplex, if you prefer that language. Um, so obviously, simulation and modeling tools, right? They push towards analytical utility and far away from contextual realism, and they don't care at all about engaging play. Right? They're not, they're not games, so that that makes sense. Uh, empirical approaches, those are that's real world data, of course, that's contextual realism it's messy data. We often have to process it, right, to make it analytically tenable. Um, so that's more on the contextual realism side. Traditional war games are far more towards engaging play, probably also towards contextual realism. But like I said, we have this big problem about doing outcome-oriented causal inference from that traditional wargaming data. Survey experiments, right, to more towards analytical utility. Not super engaging, right? It's a piece of paper that I give you. Hopefully, the scenario is interesting, um, and then obviously you leave out a lot of complexity in order to get it down to a paragraph vignette on a page. Uh, and of course, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, creating these kind of ideal typical examples of each of these DGPs. I understand that there's variation on these axes, um, but that's this is generally kind of our sense of where where those DGPs live in this simplex. And then of course, you know, I'm going to make the pitch that war games. Thought about experimentally, thought about analytically, can be a really useful way to kind of square the triangle, if you will. Uh, it can provide the best bits of all three of these things, and then we kind of move around based on you know the t- different things that we're interested in in this space. Um, so, so yeah, like I said, you know, useful method to square the triangle, um, but we do have existing war games that that look different. They come in different shapes and sizes, and so I'm going to talk through three uh, fairly well-known examples and kind of talk through our kind of uh examination of them and where they might fall inside of the the, the simplex. And so uh I'll look at um uh Jackie uh, Jackie Schneider, uh, Rachel Schaefer and Ben Schechter's International Crisis War Game, Ben Jensen and David Banks, Allen Intercept, and uh, Ben Jensen and Brendan Valeriano's cyber escalation exercise, uh, and talk about talk through them in brief. Obviously in the paper, um we go into to far more detail. Uh, But certainly, ICWG designed very much with analytical utility in mind, Um, you know, doesn't use real world nations and geographies for lots of good reasons Um, that that level of realism can often make results more complicated. Um, It's also a one sided game design. So it's players versus scenario and adversary behaviors predetermined and prescribed by the scenario. So inside of this game, this particular game design, your actions inside of the game don't actually influence his gameplay. In the next round, and so obviously that's a choice that's taken with analytical utility in mind, but it has consequences for um, for engaging play. Certainly, uh, and, and arguably also for contextual realism. Um, as, as opposed to that particular example, Island intercept, right? Really closely approximates contextual realism, right? They're really interested in a real world scenario, uh, specifically the South China Sea. And they prescribe who their players are and imbue them with the characteristics of those real-world players. Uh, It allows for strategic interaction between two players and there are consequences associated with their gameplay from round to round. Um, Of course, this, this leads to the potential for players to caricature what they think Washington would do or what they think Beijing would do, rather than engaging with the strategic dilemmas that are inherent within the gameplay, right? Like, you have win conditions inside of the game that your players should be servicing. Uh, you might be worried that they're not servicing because they're, they would say something like, well, Beijing would never do that, they would do this. Washington would never do this, they would do that, uh, and what have you. Um, and then, of course, the characteristics that they, you know, they build into their cyber cards, um, which is how they, they model cyber capabilities, you know, are are abstracted necessarily. So, um, you know, obviously can't put um, the full, the full suite of cyber capabilities inside of a war game. Um, you're going to have to make choices about how those get presented to people generally based on who gets to play the game uh, and, and what level of expertise they might have. Um, It's important to note, one of the things I really like about their design was that it was mixed methods from the beginning. Um, And so they actually have a survey experiment that goes alongside uh, the the war game that deals with some of the challenges that that I noted up front. And then we have the cyber escalation exercise um, from Brandon and Ben. So, again, here we have the primary emphasis on analytical utility. Um, There's no strategic interaction between players to drive engagement um, and players don't see the, the consequences of their decisions. Um, so again, you know, you're making choices with the ability to kind of pull data out and that has a lot of consequences for engaging play. Um, the designers do, right, try to use real world documents inside of the gameplay to say like, hey, this is something that you would get uh, in, in the real world. And so take a lot of care to have those national security documents look realistic uh, and lend themselves towards contextual realism. Um, like ICWG, the game, um, ends after one round, uh, with teams briefing out their collective decisions to a broader group. Right. Um, so again, overall, you're maximizing analytical utility, moving away from engaging play, uh, and, and and you know being somewhere in the middle on the contextual realism side. All this to demonstrate. And again, this isn't a, a discussion of like what's good versus what's bad. Just that we have these designs, um, and grant we have relatively few of them in the in the open domain. We have these designs, and they look different. And the researchers have made choices, and those choices may or may not matter. We don't have the basis with which to actually adjudicate whether those choices have mattered or not, because we don't have the canon of war games and the data to really pull pull them all apart uh, and and adjudicate them. Okay, so we see significant variation, and so we need, I think, in, in my estimation, tools to further interrogate how these designs influence the data that you're getting out of war game environments. And then, of course, those findings should provide. Normative recommendations to war game designers as to where, inside of the simplex, we ought to be living for. Different sets of research questions, different sets of players um, and different sets of problems. So, you know. Like I said, you know, that that's really the, the 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 thrust of this presentation. That's my pitch. We really need to need to be taking these laboratory uh, effects seriously, particularly as we look at the suite of phenomena that war games are particularly useful and relevant relevant to, to look at. So, crisis decision making, we don't have lots of good data there, um, although there are there are a few efforts to get better empirics there. Grey zone operations, same story. Cyber warfare, same story. Nascent um, military capabilities, hypersonics, missile defense, right? No, no empirical data there. And then, of course, new strategies and doctrine. How are they likely to affect conflict escalation dynamics, strategic stability, uh, and what have you? So, in terms of what we're up to, just in case it's useful to discuss uh, in Q and A, um, you know, we we asked in our past work under what conditions do nuclear capabilities affect the likelihood of nuclear use. In our current project that's underway now um, under the Pegasus brand at Sandia, the game itself is called Tantalus um, and part of, you know, a platform that we're hoping to build for the field called Castle to hopefully make war game designs and build easier. Um, We're asking is cyber deterrence possible and pushing on the use of um, cyber threats and, and kind of looking at when or under what conditions players might decide to use cyber threats to try to influence adversary behavior or not, uh, and looking at the prevalence of those cyber threats versus conventional threats, and then also looking at the behaviors that players are attempting to deter with cyber threats uh, as, as well. Um, so we're looking at, you know, are players more likely to make deterrent threats of various types, under what conditions, uh, etc. And one of the kind of theoretical principles that we're kind of testing is uh, something that we describe as the communication capability trade-off. So one of the things that has led some scholars to suggest uh, make cyber the use of cyber threats untenable uh, for achieving deterrence is that in by virtue of actually communicating my cyber threat, I might be giving up the ghost in terms of what my capability is doing. So that might allow my adversary to either defend against it um, or to use that same vulnerability against me. Um, and in both cases, in either driver, you'd be less likely to make that deterrent threat in the first place, uh, given those given those concerns. And so what we do um, instead of our, our you know, our, our tantalus design is vary the domains of the deterrent threats and vary the characteristics of the deterrent threats, uh, looking at how types of target, types of attack vector, and the behavior that you're trying to deter actually influences uh, gameplay. I will say that it, it, it very nicely adds on to, you know, a pretty significant canon that speaks to the difficulty of actually modeling deterrence, period, and also modeling deterrence within gameplay uh, that has been really, really interesting to to be a part of. Um, inside of our war game environment, we've had to create a threat space and an action space, um, which has been kind of Interesting and, and, and difficult to make sure that we're able to pull the data out that we need to answer these questions. Um, but, but is also kind of exciting. And I think 1 of the nice things about signal for the field was that it took the kind of the signaling and costly signaling literature that we know is important. Theoretically, and demonstrates it in practice in, in this work here, we're trying to push on this threat space and really get to grips with what these threats look like uh, here as well. Um, of course, the obligatory slew of individuals that we, that we owe, uh, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants and that's certainly true from from Peter Perla to Philip Sabin, uh, Reed, Jackie and Eric that I mentioned, um, you know, our own team uh, Green and Austin Long, Brandon Green and Austin Long. Um, so, you know, lots of lots of work in this space that's terribly exciting and interesting to see and hopefully influencing the way in which we do uh, war games moving forward. Um, so, with that, I will leave you with a picture of our signal uh, board game and uh, my email address and really looking forward to the Q and a apologies. Ian, I went slightly over, but hopefully that's okay uh, and really looking forward to engaging with all of you. Um, and I'll probably take my screen down just so that I can see you if you feel like coming off of video uh, for the Q and a portion.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you very much. Dr. Reddy. Um. And to everyone out in the audience, uh, you can start throwing your questions in the chat there. And I've got a couple of things I was jotting down to kind of start things off. So um, you right at the outset, you, you know, you mentioned that for for some of you know figuring out how capabilities can sort of impact social decisions and you know human thinking, um, any not having the data to to you know sort of make judgments on that. Um, I, I you know we're. We we get and are on board with the using the war games to fill that gap, but um, I guess a challenge that we have sometimes found, or you know, kind of like to know how you cracked it, is you you know you you've described some metrics on how to capture the data. How do you get people to listen to the data once it's captured? Um, And you know, so I I assume you you have a research question you're asking. So uh, you know, whoever asked the question wants the answer, right? Yep. Um, But how how do you sort of convince them to internalize the answer or accept the answer based on the outcome of the game? Um, you know, whether, depending if there's some skepticism on using a game to generate that data.
2: So there's, there's two answers to this question. And it's a good one. Uh, the first answer is that I think that given the, from my perspective, the nascent state of the field in terms of using war games for, scholarly inquiry, inquiry, or social science inquiry, um, is using mixed methods is is the only way to kind of square the circle. So, in in our work, we used a DGP that's fairly accepted inside of the IR literature survey experiment. And we validated off of that and spoke about where the wargaming data was different. And the survey experiment, uh, sorry, survey experiment data was different. um, And kind of took took our readers through that process, but really benchmarking against accepted DGPs in the discipline is really important. So whatever your audience views as being the state of the art in the field, try to model the problem their way and then layer the war game data on top. So if you have a customer who's very much a fa- in favor of formal models, right? What's the formal model answer to your problem set? How does your war game data vary? Where does it point to important differences? Uh, between the two, I mean, ultimately, the questions that we get asked, in my view, don't have a capital T truth answer. Model, we have to spec our model somehow, whether they're war game models or formal models or game theoretical models or computer-based models. They're they're all specked, right? So it's under these particular conditions, then this. Um, and so that's my first answer. You're you're going to have you're going to use mixed methods. Um, you know, to, in order to kind of drive towards a finding, and if you're able to triangulate a finding across multiple DGPS, you're in really good shape. If I get the same results from a survey experiment, same results from my Monte Carlos, and same results from my war games, I can be sh- fairly sure that I'm I'm seeing there's a, there's a there there. I'm I'm seeing what what you'd expect. Um, the other answer to your question will take a lot longer, which is that it involves Doing the work of interrogating the laboratory effects to get over the hump of, well, it's just a game. How can that possibly show me anything? And in reality, I think we have, a, it's almost like a branding problem because, sure, war games have problems. I think the most significant problem from my perspective is not that it's a game, but that it ends. The world does not end. Right, it is. It is iterative. It is not non-iterative. War games are non-iterative. That's the real problem with a war game methodologically, not that it's a game. Um, and you know, we should we should have a really open and frank discussion about well, where is a war game useful versus a survey experiment useful? But I see a lot of problems with existing DGPS that are sometimes worse. I guess that's a normative statement than the the war game designs that that, that some sometimes object to on the basis of it's a game. Um, ultimately, compared to a survey experiment instead of a wargaming environment, I've created the conditions under which strategic interaction takes place. That's really important. We know that's important to crises. Um, I've created the conditions under which players have to live with their consequences of their of their actions. That's really important. And I've got a human involved. And last time I checked, crises are driven by humans. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about worlds in which that may not be happening in the future um, if, if you if you want. Um, but I think that we need to do the work of really doing comparisons of these various data generating processes and being honest about where war games have their strengths and where war games have their weaknesses. Indeed, I mean, a big part of my analytical wargaming work, experimental wargaming work, addresses what we're viewed as the weaknesses of the traditional wargaming toolkit which is that you play a game once with one set of people, and then you say, this happened. Um, it's not, not particularly compelling from an analytical perspective. How do I know that having somebody different in the room might have changed the gameplay? Having a different person in the white cell might have changed the gameplay. A different, different game design might have might have led to a radically different conclusion about what happens in a Baltic sea escalation scenario. Um, and so I think that that's, that's the, that's the longer term answer that we need to embark on as a field. Of course, if you're using war games for training and education, less of a problem, because there I'm really using a war game, like I do with my students. Instead of reading shelling, I will like create the conditions under which you might actually want to deter, um, and you make deterrence real. Whoops, um, cool. sorry, Siri is saying hi. Um, but, um, but 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 yeah, I think that that longer term work needs needs to happen as well. But but from my view, the you know, the, the data not mattering because it's a game is something of a cheap shot, because really the problem lies in the fact that the game environment doesn't last forever, rather than the fact that it's a game. And indeed, the fact that it's a game and you can control the win conditions as a lever, and you can control, um, you know, the, the ways in which players are actually engaging in competition, right? And making them more or less like the real world, like that's actually value. That's not, that's not a hindrance uh, in my view. Hopefully, that got, yeah, your got your questions there, Ian.
1: Yeah, no, 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 it did, and you know, it's um, the the fact that the, you know the game ends; or you only get one iteration is a, um, it, you know it's a challenge because you don't want it to end, but you also don't have infinite right. time to give to it. So, um, but uh, you when you kind of hit on it at the end, there is something else I wanted to look at, which this not really a rat; it's sort of a specific um thing on on what you mentioned your students in class, you know, doing a game instead of reading showing. um, Like how you, what deterrence is, what it means to people, um, how you successfully do it without turning it into a a massive kinetic or nuclear exchange. You know, that's a, that's a question that's on a lot of people's lips these days. So I'm, I'm curious actually, like, um, and you mentioned the difficulty of modeling it, period, and then modeling it separately in war games. So what are you, what are you doing with your students um to have them like immerse them in a in a constructed environment where they're grappling with deterrence decisions like what what game you're using what sort of what level of complexity or or what level of understanding are you expecting them to bring to the table and how how successful has it been
2: yeah i mean really it's so i, I still try to make them so to two two different things so the cyber deterrence work that I discuss is not education experience that's analytical so that's inside of the labs where we're pushing on that. There, we're really interested in deterrence by punishment. Um, That's the, you know, we're trying to look at the conditions under which players are trying to manipulate your adversary's likelihood of doing something or not doing something that they would otherwise do. So, very classical definition of deterrence. Um, We don't dabble in deterrence by denial, et cetera. But in a classroom setting, I actually am trying to poke at the distinctions between various different types of deterrence, right? Um, And whether, you know, I want to try to have a discussion with my students about whether deterrence by denial is in fact deterrence or whether it's just defense um, or, or in some cases offense. Um, but oftentimes for me, I, I'm a really big fan of the kind of back of the napkin scenarios. Um, so one of the ones that I've just built out for my students in the last year actually uses PW Singer and August Cole's book, Ghost Fleet, uh, which is probably, you know, well known to everybody on this call um, and actually trying to pull different parts of that out um, as the as the baseline scenario, and have them think about what are the different things that um, the United States posture might have looked like in order to deter. In the, in the book, I guess spoiler alert. I can, can I spoil the book for folks? Um, in, in the, it's been in around the,
1: for a while. You're fine.
2: Yeah, in in that particular book, it's a uh, you know a Chinese invasion of Hawaii scenario. Um, so so I kind of create a vignette on the basis of where that book manuscript lives up up until about the end of the first third. Um, and, and take my students through, okay, you know, here's your baseline posture for what the U.S. looked like more or less inside that scenario. What might have happened to change the way that the Chinese behaved? So signaling, so distribution of military capabilities, um, qualitatively different military capabilities, right? And you build the scenario that way. But that, that particular game is made for, you know, a two-hour session um, that attempts to try to make some of that Literature real for them, um, and I think they actually start to understand what it is that deterrence is actually trying to achieve uh, from from doing it inside of um, doing it inside of a war game that you 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 don't get when you're kind of struck, stuck struggling through um, the literature. Which is not to say I don't assign it; I do. It's just that I think my my general sense is that you know the students are saying I like learning it via the war game; I don't <laughs> like it by reading. Um, but but that's the the back of the napkin. Of course, you know other other. You know, there there are commercial games out there. Uh, a lot of folks use Statecraft, uh, for example, and so there's like add-ons you can do to that kind of thing um, inside the classroom. I tend to like. I mean, I guess by virtue of the fact that I get to do wargaming work for a living, I like to do my own. Um, but in that case, I was really kind of inspired by their book and, and used that. So.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. And I just wrote to take rap down because I gonna go look at look it up on uh Amazon see see what it costs. <laughs> um we, we got a question here from uh, Travis Reese for you. Um Travis you would ask your question directly.
0: Yeah, sure. Let me come off mute. So um I was kind of curious about why you've stipulated that only one iteration of play is available for you in the execution of the analysis and why that's a limitation. Certainly I'm cheating a little bit at Solitaire. Ian's familiar with the game that I ran for the Marine Corps where we did multiple iterations over two months. Game was distributed, and it was a day-to-day competition game below the threshold of armed conflict and the express... Requirement for the players was that if you escalate, you actually fail. So the idea was turning this back in certain ways that would then cause a de-escalation of, uh, event. Part of that then to drive the analysis to see if that was feasible was we had to actually give them multiple yeah. uh, engagements where escalation was possible and then see how that was driven down to see then if the results. Uh, could be replicated with the capabilities of the forces we gave them. So based on that, I was wondering why you were conditioning that potentially as an absolute for the environment you're working with, as opposed to other iterations where we've done this where we haven't had the same problem.
2: Yeah, so so to be clear, we do not run one iteration war games. Um, the, the the war games that you're seeing out of the likes of RAND, CNA are often one-shot war games, or at the very least, very low-end war games. So you're talking about like five to 10 playthroughs of this war game and then a big report that says like, this is what happened, right? Our our team is very much interested in creating, it sounds like you, creating an environment that actually allows for repeat play and that allows for lots of plays such that we can actually get some semblance of the, well, we can, we can start to engage with what the patterns of the gameplay actually look like across games so that we are able to compare hundreds of games instead of ones, twos, fives. Um, And indeed, that's what you need in order to actually say something meaningful about the outcomes from your game environment. It's not appropriate in my view uh, to play a war game once and say X will happen in the Baltic Sea, Y will happen in the Black Sea. It is perfectly reasonable for that type of war game design that's played once or twice or three times to say, Hey, these really smart people and experienced people that I have around the table seem to think that missile defense is really important in the Baltic Sea scenario. Or that missile defense is not important in the Baltic Sea scenario. That's a perfectly reasonable finding from a traditional war game. It's not appropriate, in my view, on the basis of five gameplays to say you're always going to get escalation when X. Um, and so I'm massively in favor, uh, like, like you were, of having multiple uh, iterations of of, of gameplay. Um, but but what is the same for traditional war games, what we call traditional? It's a big bucket. And then analytical war games um, are, is that the game ends. I mean, there's no there's no way to get around that. I mean we we try to fiddle with that a little bit. We have uh, kind of randomization around when a game ends for various designs. So we have you know a randomizer that'll end the game after around four, five, six, or seven um for, for one of our games in order to try to deal with that particular problem. Uh, but of course it still it still ends at some point. Um but but yeah it's you know we are ideally if if folks are interested in doing outcome oriented inference, we want all war games to be performed multiple times uh, in order to get to get a sense of where the game design might be actually tripping up the findings. Um and of course in your case that makes perfect sense, right? If you're if you're having players play it for learning outcomes, they're gonna be doing learning by virtue of playing the game multiple times. What I will say is the problem there, and one of the things that we did track uh, inside of our data was when players were repeat players, um, because obviously if they're more experienced with the game and they're matched up against players that are less experienced, that's gonna have an impact on gameplay. And so you want to try to account for that. And so one of the variables that we, 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 we track is, if, if players that come across signal in various settings, how that repeat play might make some of the things that we were interested in around the use of particular nuclear cap- uh, nuclear capabilities or military capabilities, higher or lower. Um, so, we, we track that um, there's, of course, path dependence in all of this, you know, uh, how I played the game last time is going to impact the way that I played the game this time. And so that's important to, to, to bear in mind.
0: No excellent, thank you for sure. No worries.
1: Great, thank you, Andrew. And uh, don't have any other questions for you in the chat. Um, I do have just kind of maybe one final thing if you have uh that we're gaming cyber deterrence in particular that's that's another the wargaming gaming cyber and wargaming deterrence together are two kind of problem sets that we're certainly looking at at Marine Corps University. We're Good not time. alone in that, but <laughs> um, yeah, but um that Tantalus, um program that is under development. You said that was something that would be open and uh, as a tool, potentially. Um, where in the development process is that and where could our community potentially expect it to to hit the streets?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's- so it's a three-year funded project. So that's 2024 um, that we hope to have it complete. And yeah, the idea, I mean, obviously the ideal case is that we have an institution that creates the sandbox for all of us to play in. Of course that sandbox given the variety of game designs that exist will have to be very very expansive um, but the dream is there i mean whether you know whether castle which is the name of that platform is able to do that for all war games i think the answer is likely to be no um, but if it can do it for classes of war games like say cyber war games or like say deterrence war games that'll be really great um so but i mean obviously happy to to chat with anybody who's interested on that kind of sandbox effort. I think that one of the things that, so I come to this field from an academic perspective rather than a practitioner perspective, which makes me a little bit interesting perhaps. But one of the things that I think that Wargaming needs in order to be mainstreamed as an analytical tool is PhD candidates, postdoctoral fellows, picking up the method and using it and right now the barriers to entry are significant and it's very costly to engage in building a war game. So anything we can do like creating sandboxes to drive that cost down, um, I'm all for it. I think I'm, I'm very heartened by Sebastian Bay's endeavor at Georgetown, the Wargaming Society there, the MIT Wargaming Working Group uh, that Eric Greenberg started um, or is now supporting. Um, you know, those are, those are the people that are ultimately going to bring wargaming methods into the academy and help address Ian, your first question, right? Which is how do we get people to take wargaming stuff seriously, right? It's, it's, it's making sure that it has that academic backbone uh, to support it. And so that sandbox effort is, is important. Of course, you know, I I think I can, I can speak for myself and and some of my colleagues, you know, efforts to, to create that sandbox, you know, we're, we're wildly supportive of, um, and, and, like I said, hopefully we'll make a tool that's useful for the community moving forward.
1: Yeah, know that's good to hear. You know, obviously everyone else wants to. Someone else to do it 1st, and then they can all jump on, but, <laughs> exactly. uh, you know, the. The, uh, you know, having anything, uh, you know, would be better than. Um, sort of the present state, which is we, at, we at, at the Krulak center and, and maybe you and other folks in the academic or even world as well. We, we've been asked you know kind of regularly we need to wargame game cyber more and the things that we do, and we don't have a lot of options to offer. So to, to even have a, a potential option coming down the road is good news, I think. Um, okay, great. Well, we're coming up on the hour um, and uh, got a hard stop we got to meet here. So Dr. Reddy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks to everyone in our audience for joining us. And I uh, hope you come back next week where our Wargaming theme for, uh, will continue. And we'll be joined by another one of our gaming non-resident fellows, who you've also seen on that same panel before, Uh, You may also have seen some faculty development here at Marine Corps University. Dr. James Pigeon Fielder will be back to talk about war game mechanics and game mechanics beyond war games. So hope to see you all then. Thank you.
0: Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.